0: you go through a design process by the time you get to the end and you develop a product making any significant change to that is not only nearly impossible it's often very costly
1: a lot of people when they go to a new location they buy one of the travel guides to that country
0: and ideas that are all centered or framed with the goal of supporting identity development.
2: Welcome to season three of ISS EDU Learn, Ask Me Anything with Mike and Dana, proudly presented to you by ISS EDU. I'm your host, Mike P, your favorite educator interviewer, and I'm joined by my esteemed co-host, Dr. Dana Specker-Watts, the Director of Learning, Research and Outreach here at ISS. We're thrilled to have you back for season three, grateful for your incredible support with over 20,000 downloads and listens this season our mission remains unwavering to deliver the best practical information insights and strategies directly to you our goal is to equip you with the tools you can implement right away to delve into further to enhance your educational practices before we get into today's enriching content a few housekeeping items don't forget to hit the subscribe like and leave us a review on your preferred Podcast platform. Whether you're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, and many others, we're right there with you. Stay in a loop about upcoming events and certifications by visiting iss.edu slash events. And for those seeking exciting job opportunities, be sure to explore our virtual and physical fairs. Get ready for a season filled with inspiration, innovation, and impactful insights. Let's make this journey together. Now let's get started. Educators and changemakers, it's EDU Learn, Ask Me Anything, proudly presented by ISS EDU Learn. We're thrilled to have you back. Don't forget to hit the subscribe, give us a thumbs up and share your thoughts with a review on your preferred podcast platform. Without further ado, let's dive into our conversation today. We're welcoming back Ken O'Connor. Ken has recently shared his wealth of knowledge and expertise to a course of our EDU Learn platform. The course gave us insights into practical integration strategies to confidently launch a standard-based grading program into your school. Our discussion is centered around just that today, labeled starting a SGBR program at your school. But before we explore this topic, let's go ahead and get introduced to Ken a little bit more. Ken O'Connor is an independent consultant on grading and reporting. Ken also has a few publications out that I'm going to let him speak about it on his
3: own. Ken, welcome. Thank you, Mike. It's a pleasure to be with you again. You too, Ken. Did
2: you want to let our individuals know what is the latest book that you have out?
3: The latest book that I have out is the third edition of the Repair Kit for Grading, 15 Fixes for Broken Grades. It was published in May of 2022, and it brought up to date the second edition, which was published 11 years earlier. And uh, I think it turned out to be a pretty good book. And maybe one of the best parts of it is for every one of the 15 fixes, there's an educator vignette, and many of them are absolutely superb American, Canadian, international educators. And then for each fix, there is also a policy procedure example. So there's uh, lots of really clear and practical information for people who want to be moving schools, moving towards implementing standards-based grading.
2: Dana, yeah, do you have any of those books or read any of them? As I know, you have a plethora of books, yes.
4: Oh, they're like my Bible as a curriculum coordinator and mm-hmm. as a director of teaching and learning goodness. You need those. Every single school should have them on their shelf We brought them out all the time and use them um, at all my jobs and they're just fabulous. They really are kind of, you know, what you need. If you're going to start a standards-based screening and reporting program at your school, it's like Ken O'Connor is the most famous Mm -hmm. name you can get because he is so practical at being able to figure out how to do it. So yeah, I've read him.
2: Mm, Nice. (laughs) And Ken, with your expertise, I just wonder if you could just take us through a timeline of uh, what sbgrs were back in the day if it was even labeled that what old methods were used that's not necessarily what should be used today and your thoughts on that on the improvements of sgbr programs altogether?
3: Um, can you rephrase that so, question for, sorry i didn't quite get it clearly so basically i'm just asking
2: for you to take us through a timeline of SBGR programs and just take us through such things like old methods that used to be used and is not necessarily uh, used today. I remember you speaking about, like, marks and things like
3: that during the session.
4: Yeah, maybe also like the evolution, right? Like, how Mm -hmm. did it even start? Where did it come from?
3: Well, for me, and I think for many people, it came from the idea that we really needed to examine what was happening in traditional grading that clearly wasn't working. We had grades that were inaccurate because they included all sorts of things other than academic achievement. we had grades that were basically meaningless because they were based on assessment methods and didn't really tell us any useful information about student learning. We had grades that were wildly inconsistent between teachers. I I was in the classroom for 23 years, and I think every school I was in, the kids identified who were the easy graders and who were the hard graders because Mm -hmm. there was no consistency. And it was all about what we did to kids. It was None of it was about what we could do with students. And so I think we came to understand that there were lots of problems with traditional grading. And way back, and it seems funny to say this now, I had an article published in the National Association of Secondary School Principals Bulletin in May of 1995 that was entitled Eight Guidelines for Grading. And I didn't call it standards-based grading at that point. I just said they were guidelines for grading. And one of them was to base grades on standards or learning outcomes. But it was really more about that big picture of how can we make grades more effective. And then for me, I guess it happened with, Dana said, books when she talked about me, although I'd only talked about one. The other book that I have in print is a book titled How to Grade for Learning, which is in its fourth edition, the fourth edition published in May of 2018. And it's a a much bigger book than The Repet It's much more comprehensive. And the first edition was published by a fairly small publishing company just north of Chicago called Skylight Publishing. And I suggested I wanted the title to be how to get good grades and, you know, being a little bit trying to be a little bit funny, I suppose. And an editor at at Skylight came back with how to grade for learning, linking grades to standards. So for me, that was the first time of really sort of thinking about, oh, it's standards-based grading. And then I think through the 2000s, more and more, we started to use that terminology. We started to understand that the and focus the, the beginning point of anything to do with grading has to be what's the base for grades and that the base for grades needs to be standards and so it's critical that schools have identified their standards are planning their curriculum their instruction their assessment around standards and you can't do standards-based grading really at all or certainly effectively until you have that standards base. And I'm sure that was your experience when you were in schools, Dana.
4: Oh, yeah. And you could never even understand where your grades came from. And participation points was how I kind of got my grades because I was always probably super active in the classroom, but I certainly was not the most brightest, you know, studious student in the classroom.
3: Yeah. And it's interesting you mentioned participation points because I should have been, blushing or covering my head or something when you said that, because I'll admit that when I was teaching high school, I gave participation points. And one of the sort of, I guess, ironies for me is pretty much everything, not quite everything, because I did do a few things well, but almost everything that I say in the 15 fixes is not what I did when I was in the classroom, because I didn't know any better. There was nobody out there questioning what we were doing. We just did grading the way it had always been done, the way it was done to us, the way we were mentored early as a teacher.
4: I'm in a higher ed um, Facebook group, and they were all talking about how much participation grades help students not fail. And they were talking about, oh, yeah, and I'm going to I'm just going to give this many participation points to the student and this many participation points. I'm like, you're still giving participation points and in higher ed. Oh, my gosh. And I remember when I first started teaching, I was teaching higher ed. How was I giving participation points when I had 250 students in some of my classes? I did not. I did not even know most of their names.
3: Yeah. Unfortunately, that's still an issue for a lot of teachers that, know, uh, teachers that are uh, often in elementary, especially who are teaching subjects like phys ed and and art, often have literally hundreds of students that they interact with each week. Yet they're expected to give meaningful grades sometimes in, in a nine week period, which makes, as several of the, uh, those teachers have said to me, in nine weeks, I don't even know their names. And so what the when they're required to do that, it's basically educational malpractice. I
2: agree. Uh, Are you an educator looking to elevate your career? Consider Moreland University, your gateway to success in international schools. They offer fully online programs with flexible start dates and affordable tuition rates allowing you to balance work and personal life. Moreland University isn't your typical institution. Say goodbye to dull lectures and hello to engaging, interactive learning with passionate educators like yourself. It's a hands-on education that sparks creativity and prepares you for the real world challenges. With Moreland University, you can earn a prestigious U.S. teaching certification or a master's degree in education from anywhere in the world. Their programs are designed to empower you to become a leader in your field. Don't wait. Take your steps forward, transforming your career today. Visit www.moreland.edu and apply now. Let Moreland University help you make a difference in student lives worldwide, one classroom at a time. Your journey to becoming an exceptional educator starts with Moreland University. A brighter future begins with you. Ken, would you be able to provide us with some practical strategies that you recommend for educators that's looking to integrate standard-based grading system into their schools for the first time?
3: Yes, I think I hope I can do that, Mike. I mean, I think mm-hmm. the first thing is that we've got to keep it simple. You know, I will admit that you know, no, I would never suggest that a school do fifteen fixes all at once because to implement all fifteen fixes is pretty complex. But basically, there are three essentials for standards-based grading. And I think there's fairly common agreement about this. I think it's something that we've struggled with a bit because different writers, different speakers were sometimes giving schools different advice. But I think now there's a reasonably good consensus that there are three critical elements to standards-based grading. The first is, as we've already talked about, that our grades are based on standards, that all our curriculum instruction assessment is on standards. We assess by standards. And so, for example, if we have a test that's about three standards, there are three scores. There's not a single score for that test. The grades are based on the standards that were assessed. The second essential is that we are based on levels of proficiency, not points and percentages. Standards-based is about trying to get every student to proficiency. And so we need to have levels of proficiency. And the number of levels can be, I think, anywhere between two to seven. Maybe at some grade levels, we only want to know whether they're proficient or not, whether they've got it or they haven't. And then maybe we move to they're proficient, they're close to proficient, or they've still got a long way to go. And then maybe we add a level above proficiency. We want to acknowledge and encourage excellence. And then I think if we want to make fine distinctions, at high levels of achievement, we can go to as many as seven levels. But I think that's the absolute maximum. But I suppose the point I should be emphasizing is that it, the second essential is the use of proficiency levels, not points and percentages. And the third essential is that grades are about achievement only, that we report about behaviors separately, or at least we take behaviors out of grades And I would say, ideally, we report on them, but we do everything to make sure that grades are only about achievement. There are no penalty points or for what I might call misbehavior. There are no bonuses for things like extra credit, bonus questions on tests, no taking off points uh, for academic dishonesty or zeros. It's about achievement only. So three things, standards-based proficiency levels, achievement only. Would you agree, Dana, that those are the three core components of the standards-based, and that's where schools should start?
4: Definitely. I would say that's where they should start. And I'm wondering, do you think if a school wants to start, right, and they're going to take baby steps, should they start, do you think, by um, like a content area? a subject area or like a grade level? Because I'm thinking, I've seen it happen in one school where we started in the math department and then it grew into the other departments. And it wasn't all math, it was middle school math. And then once middle school math figured it out, all the other grade levels in the middle school figured it out and then it spread to elementary and high. Or do you think it's good to start in a grade level, like all of sixth grade is going to do this and then it trickles like that?
3: Yeah, I really don't think there's one way to do it because i've seen it work in so many different ways i think most commonly it starts in elementary and often in early elementary and then gradually works its way up but i've seen school districts where it started in middle school and then sort of went both ways and i've seen school districts where there have been real believers in a usually in a high school department maybe math maybe science And it's expanded from there. So while it would be nice to say there's one way, I don't think there is one way. I think uh, it really needs teachers who are enthusiastic to to give it a go and to really give it a go. Not just sort of, because I think what's happened in some places is they've sort of been told to do it. They implement it badly and then it goes belly up.
4: Yeah, I think you're right. It has to be organic and then teachers, I mean, it doesn't have to be organic. As it grows, it's starting small and then moving on and having it catch on is a good way to do it, I think. I think you're absolutely right.
3: And as I said, I think, you know, we we sometimes think, oh, this is easier to elementary because there's none of the external pressure on grades and it's fairly easy at middle school because maybe there's a little bit of external pressure on grades. And it's harder at high school because of the external pressures on grades. But I think the reality is that as a starting point, it can start anywhere if it has people that are willing to make the effort and really believe in it. Mm -hmm.
0: As an educational professional, you likely understand the positive and crucial role inclusion has on classroom culture. And you might be on the lookout for a community of like-minded educators. Senya International is that community. Senya is a nonprofit organization that advocates for individuals with disabilities and promotes inclusive educational practices across the globe. With a network of educators, families, students, and professionals, Senya offers connection, professional learning, and support for educators like you. Connect with the Senya community via our membership program or a local chapter in your area. Enjoy professional learning with the Senya community via our podcasts, online certification program, and in person or virtual conferences. Support Senya through our sponsorships, awards, and scholarship program. So, what are you waiting for? For more information, head to our website, senyainternational.org. That's S E N I A international.org. And together, we continue to make a difference and fulfill our vision of living in an inclusive world.
2: And how can educators strike a balance between maintaining consistency in grading practices and accommodating individual needs and learning styles of students, ensuring fairness and quality in the educational process?
3: Okay, well, I think a lot of that depends, Mike, on what we consider to be fairness. And I think, you know, we've had a problem with this in education, and I think you know Rick Wormley's book title, sort of that is in now a couple of editions. Uh, Fair isn't always equal. Really sums mm. up that we had, and I think I would admit, probably for most of the time that I was in classrooms, we thought of fairness as uniformity. That you know we had school rules that we expected all the kids to follow in exactly the same way. We did assessments where every kid was expected to do the same assessment in the same amount of time. But when students are different, and obviously they're different in all sorts of ways, to treat them the same is actually unfair. So we need to have a clear understanding that fairness isn't uniformity, that fairness is a quality of opportunity, and that what you need or what I need or what Dana needs may be significantly different. And so we have to have, I think, clear guidelines. And this is why I always like to talk about guidelines, because guidelines have some breadth to them. Rules or laws are here. And there are some things that we need to have that, are, I guess, are more in the nature of rules or laws. But others, most of what we do can be guidelines so that there's room for that equality of opportunity, that we're not doing exactly the same with every student. Would you agree with that, Dana?
4: Yes, definitely. Um, it reminds me of, you know, that that image that we see often now of the kids looking at the, the baseball game, right? And it just depends on trying to level the playing field, but leveling the playing field means different things to different people.
3: And it is a huge issue. I hear it all, all the time that I think it's still embedded in many teachers, this idea that we've got to be the same. And one of the main ways that I see that playing out is with uh, formal assessments and with tight timelines. You know, this is a 30-minute test or this is a 60-minute exam. And the moment the 60 minutes is up, bang, put your pens down. Well, some kids write fast. Some kids write slow. Some students think fast and think well. Some think slow but think well. And so to think that everybody can show what they know, understand, and can do – in 60 minutes is actually unfair because some students will need less than 60 minutes and some will need more. Did that answer your question, Mike? Yes, it did.
4: I have a question. So when we think about AI and all the technology, right, how do you think that's going to have an impact on standards-based grading and reporting?
3: Mm, That's a very big question, isn't it? A couple of ways, I think, that immediately come to mind, and I'll have to admit that I'm still trying to learn more and more about AI. It's obviously fairly new. But I think two main ways, one seems to be around a big emphasis, I think, of standards-based grading has been that we need to be sure that it's the student's own evidence of learning. And that's why we don't for the most part, include homework. It's things that are done under our eyes. And obviously, that's not always... And there may be preparation that's done. And I think... So the issue becomes the whole issue of of cheating and plagiarizing. And I was recently had the opportunity to spend some time in a grade 12 classroom in the International School of Bangkok. And the teachers were using AI after the students had written a draft. They then made use of AI to provide improvements, but then they had to themselves make judgments about what was good bad, and how what their final product would look like. So I think there are productive ways that we can use AI. And I think it was interesting when, you know, sort of it first came out, the whole thing was how do we stop cheating? <laughs> what I'm hearing more and more now is how can we use it productively to support and encourage learning? So I, I think that's. One, and the other one where I'm seeing and hearing it being used is to enhance and make it simpler for teachers to give feedback to students there's all sorts of ways that using uh, that you can put prompts into um, something like chat GPT and it will come up with really good feedback much faster than a teacher could ever do it so after I think an initial this is going to be terrible, I think increasingly we're starting to say this can be used productively to support learning, support assessment grading and reporting.
1: Hi everyone, this is Aaron Monez, one of the co-founders of Inspire Citizens. My name is Scott Jameson and I'm the Global Collaborations Lead for Inspire Citizens. We help inspire schools to live their mission of global citizenship. We look at existing units through the lens of empathy to impact and connect student learning with themes like sustainable development, harmony with nature, social justice, and the holistic well-being of our community. We also work with students to co-design student leadership programs. Another way that we support educators is through our Global Citizenship Certificate in partnership with ISS. This certificate program involves best practice resources for global citizenship education interactive opportunities to engage with other cohort members, a great team of coaches to walk you through your learning, and optional opportunities to connect via seminars with other participants from around the world. Please visit inspirecitizens.org and click on the Inspire Educators tab to register for the Global Citizenship Certificate, visit the ISS website, or go to the ISS EduLearn Passport to register today. At Inspire Citizens, we believe that the young people in our schools have the potential to lead change and inspire others through their work towards a more sustainable future. We look forward to working with you, and we hope that together, our resources and your contacts can help to create a more harmonious future.
3: Okay. I mean, they're the two examples that come to mind for me. You may have other examples to share that would maybe be more powerful.
4: Oh, no, I think those are fabulous. And I think that, I mean, even I use it all the time. I use it daily and I use it to help me reword something, to find different ways to say something to summarize my thoughts. I mean, sometimes, you know, you start, you're really passionate about something, but you realize you're rambling, right? And I'll say, summarize this or simplify this. I don't need as, you know, take out some of the extra language in this sentence and it's making me a stronger writer. And then I'll be like, okay, that's close. And then I'm always editing, I'm always changing it, but it does help. Or, you know, even if sometimes, you know, I'll read like a massive article and then I'll be like, all right, trying to say this, this, and this about this article. I'll say, did you think about saying this? Oh, okay. Yeah, that's right. That's what it says. Yeah, and it will help students, right? And it will help teachers because they can start to really personalize. The other day, what was our learning? Oh, someone needed another consultant asked me for a letter of recommendation for them for a scholarship. I was like, okay, here's this person's bio. But here are the ways I've worked with this person. And here are the things I really admire about the person. Threw it all into ChatGPT. It wrote a lovely letter that needed some editing for me. It always, to me, ChatGPT always has like a lot of flowery words and overcomplicates things sometimes. But then I wrote it and it what would have normally taken me a good hour and a half to two probably took me 20 minutes. I need those 20 minutes. It's like I need all that extra time. So it was great. Right.
3: And teachers need all that extra time. I mean
4: more than anybody.
3: Yeah. Time is the ultimate four letter word for teachers. All right. Ken, I don't know if you wanted to end off with any last words uh for us today. Well, I think it's probably important to mention that there are a number of hot-button issues, what I like to call hot-button issues, that when we go to fully implementing standards-based grading, extending from the three essentials, there are some things that are difficult, can cause sometimes tension between teachers, sometimes tension with students, sometimes tension with parents. And so there are issues like how do we deal with homework? There are issues like whether practice, whether formative assessment should be part of grades. Sometimes there are issues around reassessment that I think is a natural part of standards-based grading. Uh, Sometimes there are issues around uh, what we do with missing evidence of learning or late submission. And for each of these, I think there are, how should I put it, best ways to deal with it. But this is truly where there are guidelines, where at different age levels and different uh, schools, As long as you're true to the first three essentials, you can deal with those hot button issues in slightly different ways. And that's why I think it's so important that they be considered guidelines, not rules or laws. Would you agree with that, Dana?
4: Yes. So important. So essential to all that we're doing.
3: Mike has had a sneezing fit, I think.
4: I think so, too. So, Ken, do you think you're going to write another book?
3: No. No. (laughs) <laughs> but i've said that before so we'll see
4: all right all well, right Ken, as
3: we come no oh, go ahead dana
4: thank you so much for being with us today we really appreciate it and if people want to keep being in touch with you and get in contact with you in the future what's the best way for them to look out and touch base with you ken
3: well my email is kenoc at com, and that's probably my preferred method of communication i am on now called x at Kenok seven and the other place where i go to frequently and often post is uh, and what i really recommend to people who are starting standards-based grading or who are well into it the standards-based learning and grading facebook group because there it's over ten thousand members um lots of great discussion sharing of resources and um I like getting involved in the discussions there, so that's the place where people may, in a sense, see me. Fabulous!
4: Thank you so much, and we appreciate you being with us. And we'll you'll catch us uh, on the next uh, Spotify podcast or in our podcast in the future. Thank you.
3: you Thank down. you. Bye bye. Thank you. It's always a pleasure being with you, Dana and Mark.